Thank you very much, Derek. Thank you, Ben and Kate. Uh, it seems like we ha are on the end of the pipeline from Abbotsford uh, because we continue to get people moving here from Abbotsford, so uh, that's great. Great, we welcome all people from Abbotsford to join us. If you want to come, if you're watching from Abbotsford, you're welcome to come. And we have news from someone else who I think they came from Abbotsford too, or at least from the lower mainland somewhere. That was Brent and Don Workington. Do you remember them? They, uh, they uh, did, the, I think, the first Sunday at Advent, and she was with child. Well, she's no longer with child. She has a child. And uh, Brent and Dawn have welcomed their new baby boy into the world. His name is Boaz Arthur. And he was born on December 16th, weighing 8 pounds, 6 ounces. All are healthy and well. And, and I like that statement. It's so inclusive for the father, too. All are healthy and well. Uh, if you want to support them, a meal train has been set up. You can find that on our SVBC Facebook group, or you can contact the church office or Mrs. Sherry, who is dressed as an elf today, if you haven't seen her yet. So uh, congratulations, Brent and Dawn, if you're watching online today or watching later, and uh, we look forward to meeting Boaz Arthur. Today we're going to talk about a characteristic of God that few people talk about, fewer believe, and some find offensive. Yet, when rightly understood from a biblical framework, it can bring us great comfort and hope for everyday life. Many people, even Christians, may not believe God has this characteristic or they may not understand it or may not have ever heard about it before. And we know this because of the way people live, the way people talk, the things people write in their birthday cards or anniversary cards. We hear about it as they try to explain history or their lives. And we see it, the unbelief, with statements like, good luck, knock on wood, crossing my fingers, it was fate. I make my own luck. They only got there by chance. So what are we talking about? We're talking about God's sovereignty and God's providence. So I have some definitions for you on the back page of the bulletin. The first one is God's sovereignty which is his ultimate reign and lordship over everything in the universe, all of creation and history, all people, all governments, all rulers, all natural forces. God reigns over them all. God's providence is his preserving and directing actions over everything in the universe over history and nations, over rulers and disease and illness, over life and death, over human actions and sinful actions, and over all of our lives. The word providence doesn't show up in the Bible, but it came to be used to describe this characteristic this reality of God. Theologian Millard Erickson writes, providence derives from the Latin providere, which literally means to foresee. 
But more than merely knowing about the future is involved, the word also carries the meaning of acting prudently and making preparation for the future. And so theologians and Christians over the centuries adopted the term providence to describe God's action in the world and in our lives with an eye towards the future, to what he's doing in the world and in our lives. Now we may not talk about this much, maybe because we grew up in a tradition that did not talk about God's sovereignty or God's providence. And we also live in a world where many don't believe that God exists, and so they have to come up with a different explanation to explain why the world is as it is and why things happen in their lives. So explanations include concepts like fate, luck, randomness, or their own efforts. Others who may believe in God don't believe he's sovereign or that he's directly involved in our world or they don't believe he matters or does much. And then there are some who do believe in God and do believe that he's active today, but they find God's sovereignty and providence troublesome or even offensive. Some don't like the idea that God reigns over everything, including their lives. This goes against our radical individualism. We like the power or empowerment we feel when we rule our lives. Then we can do whatever we want to do. And God's sovereign rule gets in the way of that. We're okay if God rules the realm of the afterlife, we want him to rule and ensure our loved ones get to be with him. And we're okay if God comforts us in difficult times or answers a prayer for healing or gets us a new job or finds us our soulmate. And we're okay with God helping and healing us, but not reigning over us. Now, others might not like the idea of God's sovereignty or providential actions in their lives because they don't like their lives. And if God is sovereign and acting providentially, we can conclude, well, he's not doing a very good job. Our lives are hard. They're not going well. We're not feeling great. Our marriage is struggling. We face confusion. And we wonder, this is God's sovereign reign and God's providential action? Or we might resist God's sovereignty and providential action because we don't like the direction it's taking us. He seems to be leading us in a direction that will require us to change, to step out of our comfort zone, to grow, to mature, to give up some habit or some piece of our lives that we cherish, and we don't want to do that. But what if God's supreme rule and providential actions were ultimately for our good. What if his directives moved forward one of his great purposes in the world and he invited us to participate in that so that we could experience deep soul satisfaction? What if the waiting time that we're going through right now was purposefully designed by God to help us see something in our lives that needs to change? What do you believe about God's sovereignty or about God's providence? And why am I bringing this up a week before Christmas? 
because I think the next part of the Christmas story brings it up. And through God's sovereign action in this story, he will accomplish a great miracle that fulfills his word and purpose and has blessed millions ever since, including many here and watching online today. So we're going to look for God's providence in a very familiar Christmas text, and then we're going to do a quick survey of Scripture that gives us a clue about the extent of God's providence, and then we'll look at some ways that this can affect our lives today. So would you please find Luke 2, verses 1 to 7 in your Bibles, on page 723 in the Bibles that we have, This is one of the most famous and familiar Christmas texts, and as we read it, see if you can see or pick out God's providence. So Luke 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger." because there was no place for them in the inn. So this text begins with the Roman Emperor Caesar Augustus calling for a registration or a census. Now this emperor had great skill in administration and he also wanted to ensure the empire had enough funds to carry out all of his projects and to keep their military going, and so he wanted to tax the entire empire. And they wanted people to declare their assets so that they could tax more efficiently. So that's the context for this whole passage. And then Luke tells us that this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And Luke makes this designation because there was a very famous registration or census taken by Quirinius that was violently opposed. And people died, and there was a great rebellion because of it. It's referred to in Acts 5, verse 37. That registration occurred in the year 6, 6 AD. But we know that Herod the Great was alive when Jesus was born because he's the guy that wanted Jesus dead and he commissioned his soldiers to go and kill all the two-year-old baby boys and younger in Bethlehem and Herod the Great died in the year four. So the registration or census under Quirinius could not be in the year six, the one that Luke's referring to. It had to be an earlier one. Problem with that is there's no historical record of a census other than the one done by Quirinius in the year 6. So what happened? Did Luke make a mistake? Well, there are 
several explanations about this, but I think the strongest explanation is a translation decision. And if you have a Bible and you look closely at Luke 2, verse 2, there is probably a footnote beside the word when. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And in my Bible, the footnote says, or this was the registration before Quirinius was governor of Syria. And both translations are possible. And I think that this makes the best sense that Quirinius had this major resisted registration in verse 6 and before Quirinius was governor of Syria there was another registration by the emperor. And news spreads about this required registration. Verse 3 tells us each went to be registered in their hometown. So it seems like you had to go back to your ancestral hometown or maybe where you had a claim for property. And they wanted you to go back there and identify your property so that they could tax you. Either way, whatever the reason, Joseph has to go back to Bethlehem. But he and Mary are in Nazareth, which is way in the north, and Bethlehem is way in the south, and it's an 85-mile or 137-kilometer journey. And notice the references to David throughout this passage, King David, that is. Luke first identifies Bethlehem as the city of David. And David's father had land right around Bethlehem, and it was around Bethlehem that David learned to shepherd. And though Jerusalem came to be known as the city of David, Bethlehem was the family home of David's father, and Joseph descended from David, which Luke tells us at the end of verse 4. So lots of royal references there. So Joseph could head down from Nazareth, register in Bethlehem, and go back up to Nazareth. But in verse 5, Luke tells us Joseph brought Mary along. And he alludes to the scandal, for she was betrothed and with child. And in a Jewish context, those two did not go together. If they did go together, the betrothal ended. But last week we saw that Joseph was willing to take Mary as his wife anyway. So why does Joseph bring Mary along? Could be several reasons. One is that around that time, the authorities began to tax females 12 years old and older. Even if they didn't have property, you would put a tax on them and that would be more money for the government. So maybe she was required to go down with him for that reason. Or Joseph may have been thinking about Mary and the gossip vine and maybe he didn't want her to have to endure the scorn of others alone. And so maybe he brought her along for that reason. Or maybe he brought her along because she was late in her pregnancy and he didn't want her to be left alone for that. In either case, or for whatever reason, Mary and Joseph head down to Bethlehem. So where's the providence of God? Where's the sovereignty of God in this account? Well, how did God communicate with Mary and Joseph prior to this? Well, we've seen in Luke, God sent an angelic messenger first to Zechariah and then to Mary. And last week in Matthew, we saw God send an angel to appear in Joseph's dream. There's no angel here. So did Luke just forget to include this message from an angel? 
it seems unlikely because the gospel writers were meticulous researchers, researchers, especially Luke. They would interview eyewitnesses about what happened. And we think Luke had access to Mary. So we see that it's likely that they didn't receive an angelic messenger to move them to Bethlehem. And what's the big deal about Bethlehem anyway? A couple of things. There was this prophecy by the Old Testament prophet called Micah in chapter 5 verse 2 that says, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old from ancient days. And many recognized that this was a prophecy of the Messiah, meaning the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem. It was also the city of David aligning the Messiah with the royal line. But Joseph and Mary are in Nazareth and have no reason to go to Bethlehem until the emperor's decree is announced. Was that a chance? Was that a coincidence? Or did God turn the heart of the emperor to make that decree? Which would lead Joseph and Mary to make the journey to Bethlehem prior to the birth of the baby. And we actually don't know how far along Mary was in her pregnancy when we made this journey, when they made this journey. The popular view is that she was eight and a half months pregnant when they left and that she's in contractions as they come into Bethlehem and they barely make it to a stable or whatever and and have the child. We actually don't know how far along she was. Luke simply says in verse 6, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. But the news of the decree came early enough for Joseph and Mary to travel so they would be there in Bethlehem when the baby came. So either this is an amazing coincidence or we have the sovereign God over the universe using the emperor's decree to accomplish his purposes. Augustus thinks this is all about Rome and about taxation, but there's something far more important going on. The king of kings is about to be born in Bethlehem. Not in the palaces of Jerusalem just up the road where royal princes were born at that time, Because of the census and the packed out city of Bethlehem, they couldn't find a room in the inn. And so they have to settle for giving birth in a cave or a barn. And baby Jesus is laid in an animal feeding trough that we call a manger. And this would demonstrate how different this king would be compared to other kings. Jesus was born into humble circumstances, visited by humble people, and only those with humble hearts who saw their need for a Savior would eventually come to him. So God uses a Roman emperor's decree to ensure that Jesus is born in the right city and in the right circumstances, a humble place of birth. And if God can do that, do you think he might be able to manage the things in your life? Do you think he has the power, wisdom, and knowledge to providentially preserve you and providentially direct you to his greater purposes? 
Theologian Millard Erickson writes this, Providence is central to the conduct of the Christian life. It means we are able to live with the assurance that God is present and active in our lives. We are in his care and can therefore face the future confidently, knowing that things are not happening merely by chance. We can pray knowing that God hears and acts upon our prayers. We can face danger knowing that he is not unaware and uninvolved. And scripture teaches about the extent of God's providence. For example, God controls nature. Psalm 135 verses 5 to 7, For I know the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and in the deeps, he it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouse. God controls human history and the destiny of nations. Acts 17.26, this is the Apostle Paul, who says, And God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. God is sovereign over the personal circumstances of individuals, like Hannah in the Old Testament. And remember, she was barren, unable to have a child, kept praying. Finally, God blesses her with Samuel. And then she prays, and listen to her prayer in 1 Samuel 2, verses 6 and 7. The Lord kills, and the Lord brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. She recognized the providential actions of the Lord in the world and on her life. David rests in God's sovereignty in Psalm 31, verses 14 and 15. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. Paul instructs the Corinthians to be humble since everything they have and everything we have is ultimately from God. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? God is sovereign over the roll of a dice. Proverbs 16.33, the lot or dice is cast in the lap, but the decision is holy from the Lord. So there's no such thing as pure chance. The Lord is sovereign over the free actions of humans. Psalm 33.15, the Lord fashions the hearts of all the inhabitants of the earth. Or Proverbs 16.1, the plans of the mind belong to man, but the answer of the tongue belongs to the Lord or is from the Lord. God is sovereign over the sinful actions of people. Joseph in the Old Testament famously says to his brothers in Genesis 50 verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And God's sovereignty over the evil actions of people is most clearly displayed in the crucifixion of Jesus. And Peter says on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.23, this Jesus, 
delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And these are just a few examples of God's sovereignty and providential actions throughout the scriptures. So God sovereignly rules to ensure his purposes are accomplished in the world and in our lives. And when we begin to grasp this and accept it, and believe it. We can live differently than thinking the world is just random. Well, how do we do that? Well, first of all, we have to accept the reality of God's sovereignty and providence. And that might take some time and reflection and prayer, and study, and discussion with other Christians. It also includes admitting that we can't completely grasp how this all works, since God has infinitely more knowledge than we do. First, we have to accept the reality about God. Second, we recognize God is ultimately at work for our good. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And, and a, a lot of times our problems may be with sovereignty or someone ruling over us as we have had some human who has done a really bad job of it, and so we naturally resist. But God is always ultimately at work for our good. And then, Third, we must learn to live in the light of God's providence. And this is where the rubber meets the road. So what difference does this make in our lives today? Well, it can make a difference in the area of worry. And we can have more confidence because of God's preserving work in our lives. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 26, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? So, as God provides for the birds, he's certainly going to provide for us. So we need to spend some time outside and notice the birds, especially in this weather. Doesn't it amaze you that birds survive in this weather? And they are a living testimony to God's provision. So instead of worry, we can live with confidence that God is preserving us. What about love? Everyone needs love. Everyone craves love. And the question sometimes is, did God love us? Well, God preserves us by loving us and nothing can separate us from his love. Romans 8.35, Paul asks that question, who shall separate us from the love of God? And then he lists about 17 major threats that could separate us from God's love. And concludes, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus 
the Lord. Despite those 17 major threats in Romans 8, including life and death and demons and all the other things that can go wrong in life, nothing can separate us from God's love. God's providence also releases us from trying to control everything. You a control freak? Would people call you that? And you think, you know, unless I do what I do, everything's going to fall apart. It all depends on me. Remember Colossians 1.17? About Jesus, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Which means nothing in creation is self-sufficient. It all depends on Christ. So we don't have to live these self-sufficient lives thinking, oh, we've got to come up with everything on our own and all the solutions and by our energy, we're going to hold the world together or our world at least. No, in him, all things hold together. And so we're released from trying to control everything. God also promises to preserve us through trials. He does not watch us suffer from a distance with a disinterested look. He actively works to sustain us. Psalm 23, 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And the image there is one of the worst moments of life and God is with us going through the valley of the shadow of death notice the word through to the other side and if God is constantly at his work preserving the world preserving our lives we don't have to worry about all the forces beyond our control We can rest in the reality that God rules over it all and will accomplish his good purposes. And if God also cares intimately about the hurt and the struggles in our lives, we don't have to think that we're being abandoned or left alone. He knows the difficult people and situations that have come into our lives. He actively works to preserve us through trials, to grow us through struggles, to carry us through sorrows, to encourage us when we're fearful, so that even as we wait for answers or direction or release or for an open door, God is for us. God sees us. God is ultimately at work for our good, and we can rest in that. And sometimes we need a reminder of the way in which God has already providentially worked in our lives to care for us and to preserve us. For example, if you took a shower this morning, did you thank God for hot water? Does, what does that have to do with being God's providential care? Well, you could have been born 100 years ago. In 1922, there were no hot showers in most places in 1922, but you were born in this era when there are hot water showers. Did you have to go hunting this morning to get food? Oh, there was food in your fridge. You were born providentially in this era where you could experience that blessing. Did you have to go outside to go to the bathroom this morning? No, you were born in an era with indoor plumbing. Did we wake up this morning to the sounds of war? No, providentially we have been placed in a nation 
that is not at war at this time. There's no invading army that's threatening us. No sound of planes flying over and bombing. And this doesn't mean we just get to sit back and let God care for us. God's providence and sovereignty works through human actions. Joseph and Mary had to actually get up, leave Nazareth, and go to Bethlehem. But we can act knowing we're not at the mercy of chance or fate. Nor does the whole world depend on our sufficiency and resources. We have our little part to do and we can trust the Lord with the rest. And we barely scratched the surface on this topic. There's still questions about how does divine sovereignty and human responsibility work? How evil fits in? What do we do about difficult medical conditions in the lives of children and all kinds of suffering questions? And maybe this will spark a desire in you to explore this more deeply, to discover more of God's character. But I hope that you can see a little more clearly that there is comfort and hope knowing that God reigns over all and God is providentially acting on your behalf in your life. So to close our time today, I'd like to invite you to bring before the Lord that which concerns you or troubles you today or that you're waiting for, some worry, some confusion, some question, some pain, some hurt in your heart. And I'm going to read Psalm 147, and I invite you to close your eyes and invite the Lord to speak to you from that psalm something about his providential care and sovereign love for you. So let's listen to Psalm 147. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars and he gives to all of them their names. All of the millions and billions of stars in the entire universe God has named. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of the wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs Swiftly. And then a part 
about God's sovereignty in winter. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. And Lord God, you know what you are doing in this world and in our lives. The enemy wants us to believe that you are powerless, that you are reactive, that you don't know what to do in our situation, that things are beyond you. None of that is true, Lord. We need to recapture a vision of the glorious good of your sovereignty and of your providential actions in our lives and in our families' lives and in the world around us. And so today, I want to lift up all who are participating today in person or online with all that they are thinking about and all that they're concerned about. And I pray that you will minister to our souls with the truth of your sovereignty and care for us. Help us to rest in you maybe more than we have ever done before. Give us courage to act and to step out where you're calling us to step. Help us to let go of that we need to let go of and entrust to you. We pray in the glorious and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.